Matthew 16. I'll just share a few thoughts with the time we have remaining tonight. Just in my general, uh, general reading, uh, I came across this text and it, it really kind of spoke to me and I just wanted to share some thoughts and I knew we'd be uh, shorter on our time. Uh, but it's Peter's confession of Christ. I know Brother Mike uh, mentioned that the other night or the other day when he uh, made some comments, maybe it's in the study or maybe with the baptism, but um, in regards to Christ, and certainly that's true. Um, but when I came across that, I, I remember thinking about that, and I just thought about how central that event was to the founding of the church uh, and, and even farther to, to faith itself. And that's what struck me as I was reading this passage. You'll know the text beginning in verse 13. And when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist and others Elijah, but still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And by the way, you there is plural, so he's not specifically talking to Peter. He's talking to all disciples. Uh, but we see in verse 16 that Peter answers, which is fairly typical. But Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the, the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. And then he warned the disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. Uh, interestingly enough, I just I won't touch on this, but if you read on verse 21, from that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interest, but man's. So I just wanted to read that because uh, this, exalted, this exalted place of Peter in this passage almost immediately turns on its heels to where he's being rebuked and called Satan. And so it should, I think, say something in regards to what Jesus was meaning here. Uh, I just want to talk about the centrality of all this in verse 13, really the central question for all of humanity. Uh, I know he's saying in generally, what, what, who do people say the Son of Man is? <clears throat> so that's broad. That's the Jews and that's everybody around. Uh, in the immediate context, he says to them, uh, he answers, uh, they answer him and they say, well, some say you're Elijah, the others still uh, Jeremiah, John the Baptist, one of the prophets. So so everybody had an opinion in regards to who he was. But my, my biggest point in that is that everybody in humanity, every human being has to provide an answer for that question. And that struck me this week because you can't remain neutral in regards to Christ. Uh, that is a question that is demanded of humanity, of all mankind. Who is Christ. Who do you say he is, world? And there's, there's an eternity hanging in the balance in regards to that answer. So that's not an insignificant question. 
In fact, I think he introduces that question with the specific intent to say that it expands beyond you, Peter. I'm bringing this home to you. I'm bringing this home to my disciples. But this is a question that the world has to answer. Not just the disciples. Not just Peter. Not just the apostle. Every human being living today and every human being has, has ever lived has had to make a decision or an answer in regards to who Jesus is. And to me, there's only one way to find out who Jesus is. Obviously, we need to, to find out who the Bible says he is clearly. But Jesus is not John the Baptist. He is not Elijah. He is not one of the prophets or Jeremiah or Isaiah or any other of the prophets. That's not who he is. So these people who were opining in regards to who Jesus was are wrong. And so are the many wrong today. I mean, you think about today, who do they say Jesus is? We hear some of the same things. He was a great prophet. He was a wonderful teacher. He was a moral guide. He was a wise teacher in his day. But how many are identifying Christ as he's been revealed? And so people are still giving their opinions in regards to who Jesus is. Well, it takes something more than that. It's a question for humanity to answer, but then Jesus turns it more directly to his disciples. Because in verse 15, he says to them, but who do you say that I am? As I've said, the you there is plural uh, in the Greek. So, so he's talking to all of his disciples, but to each one of them, he's bringing it to a personal <clears throat> decision in regards to who is Jesus Christ. And to me, even though the whole world must answer that question, it brings it home to me. I've got to give an answer for that. You've got to give an answer for that. I mean, you can hear that as Christ saying to you, who do you say that I am? Am I in your mind a John the Baptist? Am I in your mind a prophet, a wise teacher, a great moral teacher in our generation, a historical figure? Who am I and what am I in your, in your eyes? Because that's the decision you're going to give account for someday. Now, the whole world can say he's John the Baptist, and the whole world can say he's a prophet, and the whole world can say he's a wise teacher. But when it comes to you, your answer is the answer that you're going to be held accountable for. So who do you tonight say Jesus is? I was thinking about that question today, and I don't know if all the volumes in the earth could be written to capture just who it is that he is. In fact, I think we're going to get a summary of his identity here more than an exposition of the entirety of the character and nature and person of Jesus Christ. He is God incarnate. Therefore, he is infinite in his glory, infinite in his wisdom, infinite in his, uh, in his mercy, infinite in all of his attributes are infinite. So I don't know that we can confined to books of all the books in the world just who this is but we better get it right in regards to a summary of who he is because <clears throat> if you decide that he is just a moral teacher then you're left without a savior if you decide he's just a wise man you you follow his teachings and you'll just become a wise man entering into hell in eternal condemnation. If he is not who he says he is, and if you get it wrong in regards to who he is, there are eternal consequences to that. To me, that's uh, I share often my 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 story of conversion, but that was the that was the reality that was planted in my heart in that moment that there is a this Jesus is real. 
And who he is is explained by his place upon the cross, who he is in terms of my relationship with him, what he has accomplished on my behalf. But only God could accomplish that. So it's directly connected to who he is. And that's what he says to his disciples. Who do you say that I am? Who do you say? In fact, when I was reading Simon Peter's response here in verse 16, I thought in general that there might be people today who would read the Bible and, and say the same thing and, and would it be revealed to them by God. So there's something more happening here than just this summary. He is, Peter answers, he is the Christ. That has all sorts of connotations. He is, the, he is essentially by being the Christ, the Messiah, he is the, he is the seed of the woman that crushes the head of the serpent. He is, the, he is the sacrifice on Mount Moriah that God would send for himself or would provide for himself. He is the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. When he says he is the Christ, that has all the connotations of what the Christ is, the anointed one of God. So that says a huge amount about who Peter is saying Jesus is. But then he says he is the son of God, the son of the living God. Some commentators think he means there, he's referring there to the incarnate God. The son of God being come out from God is essentially God. It is God incarnate. You are the anointed one. You are the seed that will crush the head of Satan. And you are, in fact, very God. That's Peter's confession. As I say, that's a summary because Peter can't exhaust all that that means. We have the blessing of Scripture. They had the Old Testament. We have the New Testament as well, the covenant, New Testament covenant, so we can search the Scriptures and think about all that that entails and all that that means. But in essence, that is who Jesus is. And so that's a central question for you to answer. And I would ask you tonight, how have you answered? Uh, I, think, I think sometimes we can answer in summary, but somehow or another we don't we don't feel the weightiness of what it is we just said. We might say very lightheartedly, he's the Christ. He's the son of God. That's who Jesus is. Well, it ought to have a profound effect upon me to say that. If I have any inclinations of what's involved in those two designations for this person standing in front of him at this moment, Peter, Christ is, is that, yes, but what does that involve? That's the kind of thinking in regards to this profession or confession by Peter of who Jesus is. But it is a question that you and I have to answer. I think another thing central to this text is in verse 17, which is that the source of that answer, the source of that answer is God himself or the Father. Verse 16 when Peter answers, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, in verse 17, and Jesus says to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. That's his, <coughs> Simon, son of Jonah. That's, you are in a blessed state for having come to understand such a thing as this. It's not a, it's not a, I don't think he's saying, because you said that, now you'll be blessed. I think Jesus is saying, it is a blessed condition that you are in, Peter, that you have seen or realized who he is. That is the blessed condition. I think the, the Beatitudes are a lot like that. Blessed are the poor in spirit. 
Jesus seems to be saying there's something about the condition of the poor in spirit that is a blessed condition. Why? Go through all the, with all the Beatitudes. Why is it a blessed condition? Because he talks about the reciprocal of that. This is a blessed condition for you are poor in spirit, but you shall inherit the kingdom. You're, you're rich in spirit in that sense. So there's a, there's a corresponding condition or there's a corresponding outcome of this condition that makes this condition itself a blessed condition. That's why you can say the poor in spirit are blessed and those who are persecuted are blessed. Under normal circumstances, we would say the opposite. We would say, no, people in those conditions are not being blessed. And the Jews would have said the same thing. And I think Jesus is saying the same thing in regards to Peter here. You are blessed, Simon, because why? Because flesh and blood hath not revealed this unto you, but my Father in heaven. So that's central to this confession. In other words, I can repeat this confession. Somebody showed me a Bible and say, this verse here says that Jesus, whenever asked who he was, that Peter responded, you're the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus blessed him for that and said, yes, Peter, that's the right answer. And I can read that. And you say, Larry, who do you say the son Jesus is? And I say, well, he's, he's the Christ. He's the Son of God. Well, that's not revealed to me by the Spirit. That's just been told me by you. And so there is a spiritual aspect to this in which the Lord reveals through the Holy Spirit or God the Father reveals to Peter who it is that's standing in front of him. And that's a big difference from just reading a definition of who he is and saying, oh, that's who he is. So, so it's not only that the question comes to Peter and the disciples, it is that Peter's answer, accurate as it is, the blessedness of that condition out of which that answer was given was the fact that the Father had revealed that identity to him. He didn't come up with it on his own. And that's why I stress so often 2 Corinthians chapter 4, where it speaks about the gospel uh, we are, we are veiled, those who are veiled, as it were, are the perishing. But the gospel, in the gospel by the Spirit of God, He removes the veil and we see Jesus very differently, right? We see the glory of God in the face of Christ. We see the glory of the gospel and we see Jesus Christ in a very distinct way. And the only way you can see it is if the God, the God, if God removes the veil which the God of this world has put over your eyes so that you wouldn't see that very thing. And so all these people that were saying he's John the Baptist, he's the prophet, he's Jeremiah, or he's some other prophet, the veil is over their eyes. And it's natural to assume, even from Isaiah, that Jesus didn't have some glowing aura around him except at the transfiguration, but generally he looked like a normal man. In fact, it, does, it strikes me that he probably wasn't all that, uh, he, did, he wasn't a standout good-looking guy. In fact, he said he has no form that we would be drawn to him. He's just a regular-looking guy. So how is it that Peter traveling with this man, watching him sleep, watching him grow weary, watching him sweat, watching him eat and hunger and thirst, could look at this man in front of him who he's been traveling with and say of him, he is the Christ, the Son of the living God. How do you say that? 
Well, Jesus answers it. You say it because my Father in heaven has revealed it to you. That is the blessed state of Peter. And so when you answer the question, who is Jesus, in our generation, you may give a biblical answer. But the question for you to ask is that is, is what you say of Jesus, is that been revealed to you? Have you had the 2 Corinthians 4 experience where the veil has been rolled back? And yes, you see Jesus in his humanity, but oh, you see the glory of God in the face of Christ. And then you answer in that way. Well, when you did, you didn't answer out of the flesh. You didn't answer out of your supreme intellect or your super sensitive emotional uh, countenance. You answered as a matter of God's revelation by His Spirit as exactly who this one is. That's Jesus. And that was Peter's answer. I think it's interesting as well to, to emphasize the point here that is flesh and blood. By that, he means all the capacities of the natural man could not come to that conclusion in the same way or with the same effect as the God-revealed identity of Christ in your life. That's why I'm always careful when I talk to people, especially young people, about Jesus because they learn, especially if they're in Christian families, they learn the descriptions of Jesus. They learn from us the attributes of Christ and His deity and His humanity and they got their doctrinal ducks in a row, as it were, in their minds and they can, they can regurgitate what they've been taught about who Jesus is. But I want to press them and I want to ask them, who do you say he is? I'm, you, you've told me who your parents say he is. You've told me who your Sunday school teacher says he is. But who do you say he is? And to me, there has to be that removing of the veil for them to see him and to understand that their descriptions that they've been given are accurate of him. But now they're your personal experience decisions or your, 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 your perceptions now of Christ are personal perceptions, not just something you've learned to talk about. I mean, you've all heard the joke of the little, little boy in Sunday school and the and the teacher asked one morning, what's gray and has a bushy tail and climbs trees and eats nuts? And the little kid's hand gradually went up and she called his name and he said, well, it sounds a lot like a squirrel, but I think it's Jesus. We, we teach them, we teach them to answer Jesus always. Just answer Jesus. That's the answer to every question. And we, and we teach them all these things. And I'm not suggesting we shouldn't. But just to understand when you're teaching them, make sure you communicate that there is, a, there is a way of knowing about this one I'm describing that can only be brought about by the grace of a sovereign God who rolls the veil back and lets you see him as I've seen him. That's what you tell your children. Because don't let them think that an accurate description of Jesus is, is, par is, is a parallel with having come to trust in Jesus and being saved. Because it is not. The demons can describe Christ. And they're not saved. And I think that's the point of this conversation with Peter. Who do men say that I am, Peter? All humanity is going to have to give an answer. Who do you disciples say that I am? You've been with me all of this time. Who do you say I, I am? 
And the blessed state of Peter is that he has revealed to him this identity of Christ. He's not just saying it. He recognizes Christ as the Messiah and as the living son of the living God. And I think that's important to get when you think about verses 18 and 19 because this becomes, therefore, the central confession, I think, of the church. I also say to you that you are Peter. Now, we might mention this, but the play on words here, Peter being Petros, and upon this rock, which would be Petra, which would be a large stone, uh, where Petros would be a small stone. And a lot of people have concluded that Jesus is saying to Peter, uh, the church will be built not on you, Peter, but on the big stone, me. And certainly the church, Jesus is the chief cornerstone. In fact, Peter says later on, uh, talks about the church is built upon the foundation of the apostles, Christ, Je- Christ Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone. So, so it's clearly that that could be part of it. We do not believe that he's saying as the Roman Catholic Church has established the whole papacy in regards to Peter's position here as the rock upon which the church is going to be built. It's not Peter himself. It's not the, the little stone. The Catholic Church is largely taken from the Maccabees as well, but they have established that as a, as a succession of bishops, as it were, from Peter all the way to the modern-day Pope. And therefore, the church is residing upon the shoulders of Peter here. I don't think that's a right interpretation. Some people say it's the, the foundation of the church is the confession that Peter makes. And they exclude Peter himself. I don't think that's right either. I don't think you can exclude Peter because Peter is clearly prominent in the early church's establishment. In fact, in the book of Acts, the first sermon preached and the first converts that came to Christ after Pentecost was a sermon preached by Peter. And Peter took the gospel to the Jews and also reached to the Gentiles. You remember the Cornelius and, uh, and the sheet that lowered down and so forth. So Peter is central and essential part of establishing the church. So I don't want to disregard Peter's role here. And it's not just the confession, but it is the nature of his confession. I think what he means here is that this becomes now the central confession of the church. This is... This must be in common with every believer and every member of the church. It must be a confession brought about in the same blessed condition in which Peter's confession has been brought about. We as members of the church and the body of Christ must must have the same experience of Peter with a divine revelation that this is indeed the Christ, the Son of the living God. And so we don't re- reject Peter as having a prominent role in the establishing of the church. He is one of the 12 foundation stones of the church. It's built upon the foundation of the apostles. The chief cornerstone of that church is Jesus Christ. So I don't think Jesus is like the Catholics saying that I'm going to build my church on Peter. Jesus is the head of the church. In fact, the stone which the builders rejected wasn't Peter. They would, have, they would have probably accepted him. The stone which the builders rejected was Christ himself. And the psalmist says, this is the day that the Lord has made. Their rejection of the stone, that's the day the Lord has made. Because in the rejection of the stone, that stone becomes the very foundation of the church. And that's the central confession 
of the church today. Let me just emphasize, it's a divinely revealed confession. And that's hard to discern. That is hard to discern. If I ask you that and you give me the right answer, without judging your heart, I might have to receive your answer. If I have opportunity, I might look at your life and see if your life is bearing fruit unto that, that kind of regeneration. But in our own hearts, we must know that if we're confessing that central confession of the church, that it must be a confession wrought or brought about in our hearts and minds through the illumination of the Holy Spirit. He's bringing the truth to bear in a way that's not just intellectual assent, but it's a whole, whole being embracing of the glory of who Christ is. That's, that's got to be central to the church. That's the central confession of the church. I mean, it, it, can't be, it can't be something other than that. That's foundational to the church. And I think that certainly plays into what Jesus is saying to him. Notice in that passage as well that Jesus says, I am going to build my church. So see, Jesus is the central architect of the church. I'm building it. I'm building the church. Uh, I think sometimes churches, uh, I, I get stuff in the mail constantly, almost, almost every week, with the latest, greatest secret plan for church growth. And somebody's got it figured out. And almost always it happens to be some mega church pastor that filled their church full and everybody said, well, how'd you do that? And he says, well, I'll write a book and show you my strategy and I'll make a lot of money and you can try to employ the strategy. I remember uh, the faith training. Everybody remember that, that curriculum? Uh, we did that here and we went through that curriculum and went out and did the visits and everything. And to be honest with you, I don't think not a single person ever, ever came to become a member of this local body of believers through the faith efforts. And I wonder sometimes if that's not because we thought it would work. <laughs> we thought it would work which moved us away from the architect of the church. The architect of the church is Christ. He builds His church. And if we substitute something other than Christ, thinking it'll work, I'm glad it don't work. I'm glad the faith training didn't work for us because it caused us to scratch our head and say, well, maybe there's some other way of growing the church. And we went back to the Scriptures and we read passages like this and we became more convicted that Christ indeed was the architect of the church. And our first duty was to be faithful to Him in teaching and in practice as closely as we can and let God draw whom He will into the fellowship and let them see and hear the glory of the architect of the church, Christ Himself. There's a building program. There's a church growth program for us. And it's not complicated. And guess what? Nobody makes a million dollars by selling a book about it. Here it is. Here's the book. This is the church growth book. And Jesus offers it free of charge, as it were. Here's wise counsel. Jesus will build His church. It is His church. And only is it His church. So Christ Himself is really the central authority of the church in verse 19. Christ, its head, interestingly enough, gives the keys to the kingdom, to the, to the church. I say the church because here you would think He's given them to Peter, but in chapter 18, in the context of church discipline, 
he cites this same passage in terms of the church. So, so the, church, the keys given to Peter are, are essentially the keys given to the church. And I, I do believe that in summary form, the keys of the kingdom is the gospel. That's the, that's the instrument that opens up the kingdom for the world. You remember Jesus' rebuke of the religious leaders? You shut down the kingdom and you keep people from entering it and you don't enter it yourself. Why? Because they rejected the gospel. They wouldn't take up the keys. Therefore, they can't open the kingdom for anybody. And so the gospel, and I, when I say the gospel, I mean the heart of the gospel, the life, death, and be, uh, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, but I also mean the more expanded gospel, the full counsel of God Almighty, truth with a capital T. That's the keys of the kingdom. And God gives, as it were, the keys to the church, the body of the redeemed. Through the word of God, we have the keys of the kingdom. And we go out into the world and as we share the gospel, those who receive that gospel find entrance into the kingdom. And those who reject it find the kingdom locked up to them. And so by the preaching of the gospel, we both, bound, we both bind and loose, as it were, by the same set of keys. You can unlock a door or you can lock a door with a set of keys. God has given, Jesus has given the keys to the church. And the keys essentially are the message of what he was come to do, what he was about to do, the heart of the gospel, the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The Christ, the living Son of God and his mission. And our testimony in truth of that mission is the keys. But Christ is the central authority of the church. I love this promise as well. In verse 18, backing up to there, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. That's always been an intriguing statement to me because when I think of gates, I don't think of, of an assault. I think of a defensive position. In other words, the one, against, the one who comes against the gate to test it is the, is the one doing the assaulting and the gates are a defensive mechanism. So this is a weird way of saying this. It's as if, it's as if the, the kingdom, uh, the Hades, the gates are working against the gospel and the kingdom, but they can't overcome it. So, so either that or it is that the gospel is on the offensive against the gates of hell. We have the keys. We have the keys. And we can loose, he says, through Christ on earth, What's loosed on earth will be loosed in heaven. What's bound on earth will be bound in heaven. So we have the keys to the kingdom. And we're pushing up against the, the boundaries, as it were, of hell. And Hades don't want the kingdom in there. But those gates will not prevail against the gospel. The power of Satan and the power of sin and the veil that he blinds the world to the glory of Christ will be lifted by the power of God Almighty who speaks light into that heart. And the, and the instrument of his doing that for the church is the proclamation of the gospel. You might say evangelism, the Great Commission, but I mean more than that. I mean sharing the whole counsel of God, preaching and teaching the truth of God in the world today. Those are the keys. Those are the keys. And that is the instrument by which he removes the veil. What does Paul say? How will they hear how will they believe in him whom they've not heard? How will they hear unless they, someone preaches? And how will they preach unless they be sent? 
We're, we're the sent. We're that church that he's given the keys and he's sent us out to proclaim this truth of the gospel. And that's the instruments by which he will remove the veil from his elect and they will see the glory of Christ, the glory of God in the face of Christ. That is such a distinction in my life. I grew up in the Bible Belt, so did you. You grew up all your life hearing about Jesus, didn't you? Why didn't you accept him when you were four, five, six? Especially you who came to him later in life. What was the difference in the way you saw him when you came to trust in Jesus Christ and the way you saw him when you were a little kid? What's the difference? Because you saw him in a very different way. The veil was lifted. You saw him and you were in that blessed condition as Peter is in there and you looked at Jesus and you said, he is the Christ, the son of the living God. That changed everything, didn't it? You might not known any more dialectically about Jesus than you did as a child, but you sure knew him in a different way now. Now he's a personal Lord and Savior. He's not a concept. And in that moment, you were brought into the kingdom. The keys opened the door and you entered into the kingdom. And isn't it a glorious reality to know that you'll never be thrown out of the kingdom? Never. Never, because you came through through the very veil of Christ's flesh. You came through, you joined to Christ. And in order to throw me out of the kingdom, I, I would have to be torn from Jesus Christ. And Paul says very clearly in, verse, in chapter uh, 8 of Romans that no man can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. We cannot be separated from him once we've entered into that kingdom. So I think that's why this confession here is just so central, so central to the establishing of the church, and it carried on in many ways uh, into the church today. Uh, the same confession, as it were, brought about in the same way as Peter's confession here. So stand with me and let's, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you for the, for the grace and the mercy that opened these blind eyes one day to behold your glory in the face of Christ to help me to understand that he truly is a savior and not only that he is a savior, but how it was and how it is that he is that savior. Lord, I thank you that for we who have believed you have magnified your glory in Christ. You have called light into our hearts in the same way that you called light into existence in the beginning and have shown us your glory in Christ. Lord, thank you for the security that we have in Christ. Lord, thank you for the church, the church that you have built and, and the rock upon which you have built it that is secure. Your word tells us about a man who built his house upon the sand and when the storms came and, and beat against the house, it collapsed and the collapse was great, but there was another man who built his house on this rock and the storms came and did all that they would, but the house remained. Father, thank you for the security of our rock who is Christ. Thank you for the refuge that he is for us in this dark world today. And Lord, I ask your blessing now on those who've come tonight. I pray that by your spirit, you have spoken to our hearts tonight in some way, in some way to reveal to us more clearly your own glory so that we might be affirmed, Father, in our devotion to you and that we might grow and mature and grow strong in the faith. We ask these things for Christ's sake, for his glory and in his name. Amen.